and welcome back to another episode of Interesting Stuff, the almost daily homeschool educational supplement where we dive into the waters where other people fear to swim. And today we will be looking at Captain Cook and the New Lands. And so we take a step back in time in history. And we begin by studying the man himself, son of a famous laborer. Captain James Cook started his career as a ship's boy who became over time a brilliant navigator and rose through the ranks of the British Navy to eventually command his own ship. And with his ship came missions. The British Admiralty had its doubts, but in August 1768, it sent Captain James Cook to search the southern seas for the supposed continent of Terra Australis, or the land of the south. They also allowed for the possibility that the land itself did not exist, and if he failed to find it, he was to go to New Zealand, which had been discovered in 1642 by the Dutch mariner Abel Tasman. And so Cook had both a plan A and a backup plan B. The Admiralty chose Cook, a Yorkshireman, because he had proved himself outstanding in Newfoundland during the Seven Years' War against the French. Wow, can you believe it? A war for seven years? In fact, Cook both charted New Zealand and also claimed New South Wales for Britain as well. Cook's ship, the Endeavour, came within sight of New Zealand on October the 7th, 1769. Over the next six months, he charted 2,400 sea miles of coastline. Data for the general chart of the coastline was gathered over 117 days of sailing at about 20 miles a day. And altogether, Cook and his crew spent another 58 days at anchor, carrying out detailed surveys from boats and onshore. It was a labor of unprecedented accuracy and efficiency. And I grant you as well, it was also damn hard work. Now, Cook produced two sets of charts, an outline of the entire coast and what was called a running survey, detailed maps of all the harbors and anchorages which the Endeavour found. These were compiled in order to save ships from going aground in unpiloted places. The charts were generally assembled by sailing along the coastline at a reasonable distance offshore while taking compass bearings and making rough sketches of the shoreline and its prominent features. Cook had a passion for the latest technology and liked to use the most up-to-date equipment available. He measured the angle between selected points on shore using one of his many sextants, instruments that really represented late 18th century technology at its best. The distance between the various points was measured by logline, a knotted cord which was trailed through a seaman's fingers at the stern of the ship. The ship's speed was calculated by counting the number of knots that slipped through his fingers in the course of a minute. And I imagine that's where you get the ship's speed being counted in knots from as well. 
The ship then sailed along the coast to a point where several landmarks could be seen at once. And then the whole procedure was repeated again. Where it was possible to make observations on land, greater accuracy was guaranteed by using triangulation. This surveying technique divides an area into triangular segments, and the angles of these are then used to calculate distance. Just like your maths teacher probably had you do in school at some point. Cook and his men seized every opportunity to take a reading of the endeavor's latitude and longitude. Calculating the longitude was a problem, as it depended on knowing the time at Greenwich, the fixed point from which time was counted. As Cook had no accurate timekeeper on board his first voyage, he worked out the longitude by measuring the angle between the sun and the moon, or a small number of stars, and comparing it with predicted angles listed at three hourly intervals in the nautical almanac. Observing celestial phenomena could also help to establish the ship's longitude, as these events took place at a predicted time. One such was the passing of the planet Mercury across the face of the sun, which Cook and Charles Green, the ship's astronomer, observed at Mercury Bay in New Zealand's North Island on November the 9th, 1769. Even so, Cook placed New Zealand well to the east of its true position, and it was only by the time of his next voyage in 1772 that Harrison's chronometer, a timepiece which accurately kept track of Greenwich time, was finally available. Now on these journeys around the world, the crew and the captain faced many dangers. One of the most obvious problems that they faced on long ocean voyages was combating scurvy, the condition caused by a lack of vitamin C. It ravaged whole crews, and while the cause at that time remained a mystery, wounds did not heal, gums and joints bled freely, and the victim's skin became horribly blotched with internal bleeding. It really was a rough life for a sailor at that point in time. Cook carried with him experimental rations to combat the conditions. Fresh food was known to be effective, but it was hard to obtain on long voyages. The usual rations were salt beef, salt pork, salt fat, hard biscuit, oatmeal, and dried pulses, relieved only by resins and sugar. The Endeavour also carried 1,000 pounds of portable soup, cakes of meat essence that could be boiled up, and large quantities of tangy citrus fruit syrup, which was unfortunately of little use, for all the vitamin C had been boiled away already. Cook's final secret weapon against scurvy was sauerkraut, known to you and me as fermented cabbage. Enough for two pounds a week per man for 12 months was carried. At first the crew would not touch it, don't blame them, but Cook forced his officers to set an example. After that, it was strictly rationed. And in the end, Cook attributed his crew's exceptional health to this choice of unusual food. In addition, Cook took every opportunity to make the men eat fresh. At Madeira, where he had men flogged for refusing their fresh beef ration, he distributed 30 pounds of onions per man, 
and bought all the green vegetables he could find. In Tierra del Fuego, at the tip of South America, he had wild celery picked and brought on board. The ravages of disease could not be escaped completely, but on Cook's first voyage, for the first time on a Pacific crossing by European ships, no man died of scurvy. And on the lighter side, extra rations of rum were handed out after storms, and alcohol always played a large part in keeping the crew happy. Naturalist Joseph Banks wrote that on Christmas Day, 1768, they, all the crew, were in good Christian spirits, and all hands got absolutely drunk. And there you have it. It must have been a hard life. What do you think? Would you like to go back maybe in a time machine, spend a day there? Would we even survive? I don't know. We live in a pretty amazing world and we've moved on with all these advances in technology since then that have made everything just a little bit better, just a little bit more comfortable. Well, maybe more than just a little bit. And so we stand on the shoulders of giants and I salute all of those great explorers down throughout history who have uh, risked their lives in order to bring us information and to make the world a better place. And thank you for tuning in to Interesting Stuff today. I hope that you got something new out of this. If you didn't, throw me another topic and I will dive into it and see what I can produce. Otherwise, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I wish you a fantastic day and I'll be back to speak to you again soon. Take care.